exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. The Christian church has always struggled with unity. So for instance, when the first church started in Jerusalem, we read in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people were saved, baptized, and added to the church in the very same day. And there was such a strong sense of unity in the church that we read that all believers were together and had everything in common. They were eating together daily. If anyone was in need, people were selling their own possessions, and it was a glorious time. But what most people don't talk about is that it only took about four chapters for everything to go awry. Because in Acts chapter 6, we read that as food was being given out to those in need, the Greek-speaking believers were being neglected in favor of the Hebrew-speaking believers. So right there in the early church, there was racial tension and division and discrimination going on. And this division between Jew and Gentile did not go away after they started passing out the food fairly. The division between Hebrews and Greeks would haunt the church for about the first hundred years of church history. And I'll say, even though, thankfully, we do not struggle with that, as far as I can tell, that division between Jew and Gentile anymore, the church today still faces massive division. I think especially we just went through the last three years of a special season of extra division. So when COVID hit, for instance, churches were divided like crazy on how to deal with the pandemic. Should we have mass? Should we enforce them? Should we obey the church close closings? What should we do with this situation? And churches were split down the middle. And then a few months into the pandemic, protests broke out across the country calling for racial justice. And once again, it seemed to me that the church was pretty divided on this topic. Should we support the protest? We want to be for justice, but should we back police? And, and once again, we find division within the church. And then we had an election that did not end with everyone holding hands. Um, and so what do you do with a divided church? How do you heal those deep divisions? Is it even possible to heal those kind of divisions? And where on earth would you even start if you wanted to address those rifts. Well, when the Apostle Paul was a prisoner in a Roman prison and he wanted to unite the Ephesian church, he started in the last place you'd expect. Because when Paul wanted to unite the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers in the church of Ephesus, he did not begin his letter by talking about racism or equality or even brotherly love. When Paul wanted to unite the church in Ephesus, he began with the doctrine of predestination. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, Ephesians 1 is on page 1,159. And as you're turning to Ephesians 1, let me tell you that in all the years that I've been a part of the church, I've discovered that the topic of predestination can be a little divisive. I mean, anybody else? Anybody else experience that? Like I've seen some of the best people in the world, some of the people I most respect, become absolute jerks when this topic comes up. And because of that, a lot of us, we, we see that division and, and those people acting a fool and those people turning these doctrines into hammers to hit each other with. And we just want to avoid the topic entirely. And so this subject is not preached on because we don't want to cause division within the church. We don't want to be like those jerks that use predestination like a hammer. 
But when we look at how Paul viewed this topic, he was not shy about the topic of predestination. He uses these words and terms unflinchingly. And in fact, he saw this idea of God's predestination of the believers as essential for the unity of the church. Which leads me to wonder, why on earth did Paul think that predestination was a good starting place to heal a divided church? And as we answer that question this morning from Ephesians 1, my prayer is that the truth of God's sovereign grace would lead us both into a greater worship of God and greater unity with one another. Because in Ephesians 1, we're going to find three unifying realities. Three unifying realities. First, in verses 1 through 6, believers have been made a family by the will of the Father. Second, in verses 7 through 12, believers have been made a family by the blood of the Son. And third, in verses 13 through 14, believers have been made a family by the seal of the Spirit. Now, just let me be real honest with you guys. I struggled with this topic because it is such a divisive issue in the church, but it's in the Bible. It needs to be addressed. And as I was preparing the sermon this week, I'm like, we're only going to get through point number one. So we're going to get the first six verses and Lord willing, we'll cover then the, to the end of verse 14 next week. But for now, let's start with the first unifying reality. We've been made a family by, by the will of the Father. Pray with me. Sovereign Lord, this passage, which was meant to unite your people, has been a source of deep division in the church. So we ask that you would redeem it for this church this morning. Send your spirit to enlighten our eyes so that we may understand and submit to your word. Help us to see the plain meaning of the text, and may we be willing to receive what it has for us. And Lord, as I preach, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is delivered. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at me to verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. If you're ever reading the New Testament, let me plead with you, do not skip over Paul's greetings. In fact, Paul is often so eager to teach, so eager to instruct, that in the way he says hello are hidden deep theological truths. And in verse 1, notice that Paul makes it clear that yes, he is an apostle. Yes, he was commissioned and sent out by Jesus himself, but he was not an apostle by his own will. Many of you know Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and it was his life's mission to exterminate the very people in this room. He did not want this church to be get built. He wanted to kill everyone who claimed Jesus was Lord because he thought it was heresy. He thought it was blasphemy to claim that Jesus was God and that he rose from the dead. And so anyone who believed those things about Jesus was deserving of death. If it had been up to Paul, if he had full reign for the rest of his life, he would have com uh, continued with his mission of murdering Christians until the memory of this Jesus movement was long forgotten. But when Paul, who was also called Saul, when he was traveling on the road to Damascus, a light from heaven blinded him and a voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So Saul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And isn't that incredible that in that moment, when, when Paul asks the Lord, who are you? Who am I persecuting? Jesus says, me. 
That Christ identifies himself so closely with his people, with his church, that to persecute the church is to persecute Christ himself. And then Paul is blinded for three days. He's led out of the city until finally a Christian named Ananias is sent to heal him. And when Ananias placed his hands on Saul, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And immediately he got baptized and he started preaching that Jesus was the son of God and the rest is history. And all that to say, Paul recognized from his own experience that it was ultimately by God's will that he was an apostle, not by his own will. I know many of you have similar stories. I know if it had been up to me, I would not be in this church, not be in this place. I would not be a pastor. I'd probably call myself a Christian. But if it was up to my own will, I would have nothing to do with this strange little group called Christians. But thank God, by, by his will, I am what I am. Look to verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, once again, this sounds like a standard hello. But I want you to notice something about verse 2. First, the word grace was the traditional Greek way to say hello, is the traditional Greek greeting. And the word peace, or you may know it as shalom, is the traditional Hebrew greeting. And so right from the start, Paul is specifically using these two terms of grace and peace to demonstrate a unity between Jew and Gentile. So greetings to both Hebrew and Greeks. And he also says, from God our Father, not my Father, not the Father of the Jews, but our Father both of Greek and Hebrew. See how Paul's already building his case for unity right from the get-go. And then we get into verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. After Paul's introduction, he kicks this letter off by blessing God, which normally we do not talk about blessing God because normally when we think of blessing, we tend to think of God providing us with material blessings. But here, blessing has nothing to do with that. To bless God simply means to worship him, to praise him, to adore him. Raises the question, why should we bless God? Because through God in Christ, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And that phrase, in Christ, is so important here. If you actually take a step back and you look at Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 3 through 14. This is one sentence in the Greek language. I know there's a lot of periods in, in, you know, all throughout, but um, scholars had often called Paul a monster, a mutilator of the Greek language because it's run-on sentence after run-on sentence because he's just so excited. He's so overflowing with praise that he can't stop his thought, and it ends up being one of the greatest poems in all of Scripture, these Verses And from verses 3 to 14, we're reminded 11 times that all of these blesses are, blessings are found completely and totally in Christ. Because salvation, let me tell you this, salvation is not something God gives to you. Salvation is a person you need to be united to. Have you ever wondered why Jesus' death can forgive anyone's sins? Because if you believed in Jesus, then you have been united with Christ through faith. And because of that union, your sins were nailed to that cross because you're united with him. And because you've been united with him, because of that union, all of Christ's righteous deeds are now yours because you are in him. 
And listen, this union with Christ is the underlying truth behind everything you do as a Christian. That God declares you as righteous through your union with Christ. Your sins are forgiven through your union with Christ. God grows you in holiness through, guess what? Your union with Christ. You know why we celebrate baptism? Because baptism is a sign that we've been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You know why we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Because communion is a sign of Christ's body and blood being in us. Even church membership, of all things. We did not make up church membership. It's not like, hey, if you want to be a regular Christian, get baptized and show up. And if you really want to be a super Christian, become a member. No, church membership was not our idea. We did not make it up because membership is this idea that we have been united with Christ and that union that we have with Christ extends to other Christians around us. That when you were adopted into the family of God, you did not just get a new heavenly father, you got new brothers and sisters too. And in verse three, we should praise God the Father because through our union with God the Son, we can receive all the blessings of God the Spirit. I hope you even picked up by now the Trinitarian nature of this passage because not only do you see the Trinity in verse three, but from verses three through 14, this passage can clearly be split up by the different ways each member of the Trinity blesses us. So naturally, we start with the blessings of God the Father. How Does God the Father bless us? We'll look to verses four through six. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Stop there. You're forgiven. (laughs) Sorry, Paul. It just was the perfect opening. I had to go for it. (laughs) The first great blessing that we have been blessed with did not start when we first believe. It actually started long before you were even born. If you are a Christian long before you decided to follow Jesus, before God spoke the universe into existence in Genesis 1, God chose you in Christ, that you would be holy and blameless. Now, this idea of God choosing people is really alarming to many people. I'll I'll confess, when I was a brand new Christian, I was sitting at a Bible study and I remember my pastor explained to me, hey, some Christians actually believe that God predestines people for salvation. And I felt disgusted. How could you think that of God? How could you think that he would do that? That he would violate people's free will like that? And then I remember coming across Ephesians 1 and Romans chapter 9 and being shocked and utterly speechless that passages like this were in the Bible. And the more and more I studied the Bible, the more and more I realized that the Bible is is a book all about God choosing people. This isn't a new concept. This isn't something Paul made up. In fact, you go all the way back to Genesis when God chose a man named Abram. And then when Abram had two sons... One named Ishmael, one named Isaac. God chose Isaac. And then when Isaac's wife was pregnant with twins, even before they had been born, even before they had done anything good or bad, God chose the younger to serve the older. God chose Jacob and not Esau. 
And then even when we go further in the story, we read in Deuteronomy 7 that God chose the nation of Israel out of all the nations of the world, not because they were more numerous. In fact, they were the least numerous. But God says, I chose you simply because I chose to and I loved you and I decided to set my affections upon you. Even about a year ago, we were studying Jesus in the upper room the night before he died. And he says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And let me tell you this. If you are a Christian in this room, in verse four, Paul is telling you that in the same way that God chose Abraham, in the same way that God chose Isaac and Jacob, and in the same way that Jesus chose his apostles, God chose you which raises the question of why. Why on earth did God choose us? Like I was, the all, I was always the last to be picked for any kind of sporting event. We're playing dodgeball. I'm the last one. And if I'm ever not the last one picked, I'm like, why me? I've got asthma and I'm big and I'm slow. You want Lenny, he's faster than me. Why'd you pick me? That's always my question, why me? So there are many who would say that it's because God knows everything And because God knows everything, he looks down the corridor of time and he sees all who would believe in him. And then God simply chooses those who will choose him. There's a few problems with that. First off, the word predestined in this passage, that word means exactly what you think it means. In this verse, God is the acting agent. He is the one who chooses. He is the one who predestines, who decides beforehand, who determines beforehand. He is the one who casts the deciding ballot. When a reporter gets up on TV and announces the results of a presidential election, they are not deciding who won that election. They did not choose the president. They're just announcing who was chosen. But when someone goes to the ballot box and they cast their vote, they are making a choice. They're electing a candidate And in Ephesians 1, God is not depicted as a reporter announcing the winner of the election. God is the voter. There was an election held in eternity past, and Ephesians 1 is saying that God the Father cast the only and deciding vote. And let me tell you why that's a glorious truth. Because if God, before the creation of the world, if he had looked down the corridors of time to see who who are the faithful, Who are going to believe in me? Heaven would have none. None would be chosen. Listen to me closely. If God had not chosen some, then heaven would have none. If God had not predestined some, then heaven would have none. If you don't believe me, remember what we read earlier in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, and no one even seeks for God. Because in and of ourselves, we would have never chosen God. Without the sovereign grace of God going into our hearts and drawing us to him, we never would have believed. That's why Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Left to our own free will, we were all slaves to sin, happily serving at the feet of our master. We didn't want Jesus. And without divine intervention, we never would have come to him. In the words of Elder D.J. Ward, 
Do flowers decide to bloom? Does water decide to be wet? Does fire decide to burn? Does night decide to let day come in? Do babies decide to grow up? Then how did sinners decide to become saints? The short answer is they don't. They do not decide. And I'm not surprised when human beings sin because it's in our very nature. Ephesians 2 tells us we were dead in our sin. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I'm not surprised when a dog barks. I'm not surprised when a bird flies. I'm not surprised when a sinner sins. But I'm totally speechless when a sinner repents and believes in Jesus. Because that is only possible by the hand of Almighty God. See, oftentimes conversion is depicted as a man drowning in the ocean and God's just got to throw you the, the life vest or the, the rope and you just got to reach out and grab it and pull yourself in and do the rest of the work. You've got to help God save you. That is not the biblical picture of conversion. The biblical picture is Lazarus. Four days in the grave, you're already stinking. The stone has been rolled. The sisters don't even want to let you out. But Jesus still says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes. That's the miracle of what it means to be born again. You cannot make yourself born again. You have about as much power over your second birth as you had over your first. To be born again means that God the Father has sent God the Spirit to change you, to reorient your desires and to make Jesus irresistibly beautiful in your eyes. That suddenly your desires are changed and then yes, you do choose him. That now that God has given you a new heart, all you want to do is follow Jesus. All you want to do is turn from your sin and all you want to do is to be his disciple. To be born again means that God has to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. To change your nature from child of wrath, from sinner to saint. To open your eyes for the first time and have the scales fall off. And it's only after God the Spirit causes you to be born again that then you have the desire and the ability to believe in God the Son. I grew up in a house with two younger brothers. We had the same parents, same school, same church. And one of my brothers, faithful Christian, but another one of my brothers is non-believer. And over time, as we were growing up, there was this growing tension that I had one brother who was faithful and another brother who wasn't, and who was growing more and more distant from the church, that he went to all the same youth group services and summer camps, and we heard all the same services, and we had read all the same things. And so I grew resentful towards my unbelieving brother because I was like, why don't you get this? You have access to all the same information that I do. Why are you so stubborn? I just could not understand for the life of me why he did not believe. And eventually, these are the lies that I started believing. I started to believe, maybe it's because I'm more spiritual than he is. Maybe it's because I'm smarter. Maybe it's because I'm more humble. Like, maybe that's just sin. <laughs> and of course, those were some of the most arrogant thoughts I've ever thought. Because looking back, I now realize that I was no less of a sinner than he was. The only difference was that God had caused me to be born again, and he had not yet done that miracle in the heart of my brother. And all that to say, if you are a Christian in here today, this passage 
is humbling. I think that's why we hate this passage. I think that's why we decry it. We almost want to rip it out of our Bibles because it is a humbling, humbling thought to think that God is absolutely in control. It's humbling to think that God did not choose you because you are not more spiritual than anyone else. God did not predestine you because you were smarter or more humble or more righteous. But as 1 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace with which he gave in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When God chose to save a people for his own possession, when God chose to show grace to an undeserving sinner, he did not choose it based upon our works or our abilities or our potential or anything good in us, but merely because God wanted to show his unconditional grace to undeserving sinners, merely because God chose to unconditionally set his love on you and me. And of course, you may be thinking, yeah, that sounds great for those who God chose, but how is it fair that God would choose some people and not every person? Well, think about it this way. Imagine you have 10 prisoners lined up who all deserve the death penalty. The evidence is there. The judgments have been made. The sentences have been delivered. And a king who has every right to pardon the prisoners. He decides to show mercy and he pardons five of them. The king is not unjust because he decides to show mercy to some and not others. All were deserving of death. The five who did not receive pardons got the justice they were owed and the five who were pardoned simply received undeserved grace. So I've heard people cry out, why does God not save everybody? And the question should be, why does God save anyone? Because if he left us to our own devices and to our own sin, he would be just right, holy, and loving to condemn us all to hell for the rest of eternity. But God in his grace chose to save. So instead of angrily shaking your fist at God and asking why, if you could realize the beauty of God's grace and predestination, you should fall down on your knees and cry out, why me? There was one time a preacher was asked, how do you deal with this problem of predestination and free will? And the preacher responded, that's not my problem, that's God's problem. And for God, that is not a problem. I know it may sound like I'm contradicting everything I just said, but I do believe we have free will. I don't think that we're robots. I think every decision that we make is ours and we are responsible for every decision that we make. And I think we even see this kind of logic in how the Bible was written. So for instance, who wrote the book of Ephesians? Anybody? Paul. Oh, did not God write the book of Ephesians? So Paul or God, anybody? You see the tension there already. But even, okay, let's say, let's go with God for a second. Okay, God wrote the book of Ephesians. But if God wrote the book of Ephesians, then why does Ephesians read so differently from Revelation? And why does Revelation read so differently from Psalms and read so differently from Leviticus? That you see the personalities of the authors are preserved in every one of the books that they wrote. How did this happen? Because God inspired men to write his holy, perfect word without destroying the personalities or the free will of their authors. They could choose the words they were making. They could write the letter in whatever way they wanted to. And all the while, God was guiding them along, perfectly writing the word exactly the way that he wanted to. 
And we read this in 2 Peter chapter 1 says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now here's the question. How did God do it? How did God write a perfect book, write down everything he wanted to say, without destroying the free will of the writers, turning them into robots? And the answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea, but God did it. And so now the question for us is, did God predestine us or did we choose? And the answer is, yes, he did both. I don't know how he did it, but the Bible says it, and that settles it, therefore I believe it. Back in 2007, when I first believed, I made that decision to follow Jesus because his grace became so amazing to me that I was like, what else can I do? I didn't even understand everything that was going on. I, just, I want to follow Jesus. Something has changed in me. I'm going after him. I remember they asked me, do you want to be baptized? I didn't know what baptism was, but I'm like, sure. I'll do whatever Jesus wants me to do. I happily and wholly chose to believe in him. But I also know that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen him. Maybe you're still not there yet. I can feel the tension in the room. Maybe you're still revolted at the very idea of predestination, but let me point something out in the text that, that, that might help a little bit. God's predestination is rooted in his love. Look back to the end of verse four. Look to the end of verse four. Whoever came up with the verse numbers, I don't think they did a great job. You know, I'm thankful for what they did, but right here, they cut the sentence right in half. And the sentence in verse five really starts in the beginning of verse four, because Paul tells us that in love, he predestined us for adoption. How deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. If God chose to love you, let me listen to this. If God chose to love you because he looked down in the future and he saw how awesome you were, then what happens when you stop being awesome? If God chose you because he knew, hey, they're going to believe in me, what happens when you start to doubt? If God chose you based on some future knowledge of how great you would be or how faithful would you, you would be, then his love is dependent on your future performance. And that is terrifying, friends. Because what happens when you fail? But if God's love has been given to us, has been set on us, has been bestowed upon us unconditionally before we had done anything, before the creation of the world, then what can separate you from the love of God? You can't lose it because you've always had it. That Christ loved us and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And notice that God did not predestine us to become his slaves or his servants, but his sons. It's really interesting. If you look in all the language of scripture, even the women of scripture are called sons of God, which seems strange, right? No daughters of God in the kingdom. When Israel, only the firstborn son inherited the riches of the father. And so by designating as everyone as a son of God, if you are in Christ, you get to inherit all the blessings of Christ. You get the status of the firstborn son. And this is the whole reason that Paul brings up predestination in the first place. Because Paul wanted to tell both the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers in Ephesus that they were both chosen before the foundation of the world to be adopted and to get this, 
the same family. And even today, if you guys look around this room right now, look around at the other believers who are here with you today, your other church members, your bond with one another did not begin this morning at 10 a.m. Your bond with one another did not begin when you joined this church, when you were baptized, not even when you first believed. The bond you have with your fellow believers predates Genesis 1. Your bond with one another began in God's eternal choice in eternity past. And so we clearly see from verses 1 through 6 that in Christ we have been made a family by the will of God the Father. And that's why my prayer was that the truth of God's sovereign grace would lead us into greater worship of God and greater unity with one another. Because in these first six verses, we saw that as believers, we have been made a family by the will of our Father. I'll just admit, it took me years, years after I first heard about the doctrine of predestination for me to embrace it as biblical. So let me say, if you are still wrestling with this right now, God bless you. Like wrestle with it. If you have more questions, please come talk to me. There's nothing that would make me happier than getting to sit down with an open Bible. Let's just talk about this. Let's see what the Bible has to say. And the reason I'm encouraging this struggle, I'm not just saying shut up and agree with me because I'm right, is because it's through this struggle that personally, as I, as I took the Bible and I tried to figure out what does God's word really say about the sovereignty of God? And as I took the Bible and I just studied it day in and day out. I was like, what does it say? And I kept combing the scriptures to figure out what does God's word really teach? And... In the end, I feel like I have an answer that satisfies me, but it was that journey of struggling and wrestling with the scriptures that I grew more with my relationship with the Lord than I had at any other time. And it's just a blessed season. Um, so if you're uncomfortable right now, if you don't have all the answers, encourage that, follow that, struggle with that, but take those struggles to the scriptures. Continue to ask those questions, but ask them in love. Because I'll say this, even if we don't agree about what predestination is, what it means for God to choose us, the underlying belief in this passage that Paul is pushing is that you and I have a connection that predates the foundation of the world. So that's why we try not to get mad at each other about what we think about vaccines or masks or politics. Because yeah, those things might be important, but the bond we have is eternal and it is going somewhere for eternity. So maintaining that spirit of peace and unity is everything. It's everything. I also say, let's say you're not, you're not struggling at all. You're just like, pastor, you're wrong. I don't agree with you. I have a different view. And let me say, I respect that. There are godly people much smarter than me. Once again, three pound brain that went to public school in Louisiana. I am not infallible. <laughs> There's a lot of people that are godly that disagree with me. We've had pastors in the past in this pulpit who have strongly disagreed with what I just preached today. I've got Nathan and Bob Herman on my side, so I'm just saying that it helps me out a little bit. The point is, is that I know godly, intelligent men and women who take another view, and that's okay. But even though, let me say this, if you're, you are not required to be a member of this church if you embrace everything I said in this sermon. Um, but I do want to encourage you to embrace these truths of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation because these truths of God's sovereign grace will change the way you pray. God is really in control. He can really turn the heart of stone into flesh. He can change the leper's spots and there's nothing stopping him. 
It'll change the way you read the Bible. The almighty king of the universe has written a letter to me and he is powerful. That this book is not about me. It tells me truth about me, but the Bible is not about me. It's about the glorious king of the universe. And I get to experience him and learn from him in the scriptures. This changes the way you see the whole world. You look at politics and you see the world out of control and you see earthquakes and rebellions and battles and and all these things that make you lose your mind. And you say, my God sits on the throne and he has a plan and his plan never fails. If you can embrace these truths in your heart, you will experience a spiritual Copernican revolution. Let me explain. Many of you know that Copernicus was an astronomer in the 1500s who discovered the earth was not the center of the universe. In fact, he found evidence that the earth revolved around the sun. And this simple truth today is taught to third graders. But at the time, this truth turned the whole world upside down because it challenged how people imagined the universe for thousands of years. And that's why the discovery became known as the Copernican Revolution. The center of the universe shifted from the earth to the sun. Well, in the same way, we are born thinking that we are the centers of our own universe. We're born thinking that everything revolves around us and we are the sovereign king of our lives. And so how dare God interfere with that? But the doctrine of God's sovereign grace flips all of that upside down. That God has every right to interfere and when he does so, it's for our good. That God is not in heaven, desperately hoping that some will choose him, but rather he is working all things together, as verse 5 says, according to the purpose of his will. He's working all things to the praise of his glorious grace. He uh, He has a plan that has not changed since before the foundation of the world. It is a good plan. It will succeed, and that changes everything. This morning, I've got four ways. I've got a lot more ways, but let me see if I can cut it down. This, this, truth is, this truth is deep, but it changes the way you live if you can understand this passage and really apply it. So let me give you four pastoral charges as we reflect on Ephesians 1. First, humble yourself. Humble yourself. We are not saved because we turned out to be cleverer or more deserving than other people. The decision was made long ago before we were even born, before God created the world. Being chosen is not a badge of pride to to lord over other people. It should humble us by reminding us that we are not more deserving than our atheist or Muslim friends. If we had chosen, if we had, uh, if we had chosen God without him first choosing us, then we could be proud of our wisdom. Since he first chose us, we should only ever be humble, that our salvation was entirely his gracious initiative. Second pastoral charge, share the gospel boldly. Share the gospel boldly. There's some people who think, If God predestines people to salvation, why would you ever share the gospel? God's going to take care of it anyway. What's the point of going out? And what I say to them is, I don't think you understand how desperately wicked men are. That in the book of Ezekiel, God sets up Ezekiel before a graveyard. He says, preach to these bones. Preach to them. And then by the Spirit of God, that graveyard is resurrected and flesh and blood covers these and they're, they're resurrected. And, and if you understand man's true spiritual state, that we're not just drowning, but we're dead. We're a swollen corpse at the bottom of the sea. Unless God sovereignly intervenes, our evangelism is worthless. 
But if we understand that God has destined people for salvation, that in heaven, in Revelation, we read there are people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, then we are guaranteed success. That we can send people to the most dangerous nations in the world and we are guaranteed some of those people, some of that nation will be in heaven worshiping around the throne because God has chosen some of them and they will come and the gospel will be successful. So share the gospel boldly knowing you will succeed. Third pastoral charge, be united with Christ through faith. Be united with Christ through faith. The only way to access any of the blessings of heaven is through Jesus because Jesus is utterly unlike us. We were born sinful. He was born perfect. We constantly disobey the will of God, but Jesus came down and he said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What did God send Jesus to do? Jesus told us, all the father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep. He came down to find the sheep, to call out to them. My sheep know my voice and they will come to me. That he came for the sheep. Jesus came here to die for all who the father had predestined. Jesus came to accomplish God's eternal plan by dying for all who God had chosen. He died as a substitute to ransom us from sin, death, the devil, and hell. And the truth that we need to understand this morning is that Jesus succeeded in his mission because he rose from the grave. And if you are not a believer, if you repent of your sin and put your faith alone in the sacrifice of Christ, then through faith you will be united with Christ and all of your sins are crucified with Christ and all the blessings of Christ are yours. Now, if you're a believer, you may be thinking, but what if God hasn't predestined me? And that's a fair question after this sermon. Let me tell you, you can know right now whether or not God has predestined you for eternal life. If you humble yourself and if you believe in Jesus, then you'll know that God has indeed chosen you from before the foundation of the world. Then imagine you see a door and on the front of the door, you read Matthew eleven twenty eight, which says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So you're like, I'm wearied, I'm burdened, I want to go through this door. So you go through the door, and in there, and there's this banquet, and there's a feast, and it's glorious. But then as the door closes behind you, you see this writing on the back of the door, and it's Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption. Becoming a Christian is like walking through that door. And on that note, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your grace. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.